chapter 1, verse 8. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. We asked for the Lord's blessing on the reading of his word and that he will bless Pastor Cliff as he brings us today's sermon. Let's look at that passage of Acts chapter 1 once again. Acts chapter 1. I'm going to start with verse 4 now and build up to verse 8. That was read uh, by Edna for us. Thank you for that. Let's start with verse 4. It says, And being assembled together with them, he, meaning Jesus, commanded them, meaning the disciples, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Were these words fulfilled for the disciples? Did the Holy Spirit come upon them? Yes, we read the whole book of Acts. Really, is it's called the book of the Acts of the Apostles. But maybe it would be better to call it the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because the, the, the disciples were simply tools in the Holy Spirit's hands. They were his mouthpiece. And as they were willing to be used, he used them, didn't he? Did they preach in Jerusalem? Yes. Did they preach in all of Judea? And Samaria? And to the ends of the world? Yes. We even have uh, indications that uh, which one was it? Was it Philip? Went all the way to India. Thomas, that's what it was. Thomas, all the way to India. And in the, was it the 1500s or the 1700s, somewhere in there, the Inquisition followed some Christians who moved from Europe down to India to get away from the Inquisition. And the people, the leaders of the Inquisition followed them all the way to India. And in India, they found not only the ones who had left Europe, but they found Christians in India 
who were keeping the Sabbath and had been keeping it all through the centuries because of Thomas's ministry to them. So, were there powerful things that were done by the Holy Spirit? Wonderful and powerful and amazing things. Could there still be a power available for the church today? For what? And what would it look like if the Holy Spirit came upon us with power? Well, let's go to chapter 4 and look at what happened. Uh, a, a, just a little bit of what happened there in the time of the disciples. Here we are in chapter 4. We look at starting with verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about how many? 5,000. 5, that was some pretty powerful preaching, wasn't it? Some pretty powerful conviction by the Holy Spirit to help them to believe what they heard. Now go down to verse 13. The authorities have arrested them, we saw, and they're t trying to give the disciples instruction. So verse 13 says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. It wouldn't be so bad to be uneducated and untrained if people could see that you've been with Jesus. That's the best compliment of all, isn't it? Because Jesus has the best available. So they saw that they had been with Jesus, although they were uneducated, untrained. Now go down to verse 18, verse 18 through 20. And they called them and commanded them not to preach at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Another version says, we can't stop preaching about Jesus. That was quite a bold statement right to the leaders, wasn't it? People who had authority put them in prison or punish them, beat them, or even kill them. They said, we can't stop preaching in the name of Jesus. So that's bold. That's something marvelous, that people uneducated, untrained, would have such boldness in the face of these doctors of the law, these government officials, to say, you can't stop us. We're going to go ahead. That's quite something. Now go to chapter 5. Something else was going on with the spirit and the people chapter 5 starting with verse 1 
But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the disciples' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, it was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon them all, or all those who heard these things. And it goes on telling about how the wife came in, and they asked her, is this the whole amount? And she said, oh yes, this is the whole amount. And she was lying too, wasn't she? And the same thing happened to her. She died, and they took her out. And the people were very much afraid. Amazing things, powerful things. In the Soviet Union, we find there was a man named Dmitri. Dmitri grew up in a believer's home. He was a Christian. And they went to church and they um, participated in what they could before communism came and took over. And as it did, more and more of churches were closed. Pastors were sent off to jail if they still wanted to preach. And there was less and less available for believers to attend for any kind of a church service or anything. In fact, by the time Dimitri was an adult and had a wife and children of his own, two sons, the closest church to him was a three-day walk away. Three-day walk away. And so he and his family only got to go to church about twice a year. Uh, and so they, they didn't have fellowship and they didn't have worship. And Dimitri hadn't been trained in having worship at home, but one day he said to his wife, he said, you know, you probably think this is a crazy idea, and some of us husbands do have crazy ideas. You probably think this is a crazy idea, but I've been thinking, our boys are growing up with very little training. They don't get to church, they don't get to be with other young believers their age. And they're not learning different things from the Bible. And they had a family Bible at this time in Dimitri's house. He said, what would it be, do you suppose it would be okay for me, without any training, I don't know, I'm not a pastor, I don't have any Bible training or anything, but if one evening a week I could take and take one of the stories of the Bible and read it and try to explain it to the boys, what do you think of that? Well, he didn't know it, but the wife had been praying for years that he would want to do something like this. So she was totally on board with that, and she said, great, let's do it. So one night a week, they took out the old family Bible, and he would read one of the stories in the Bible, and he would try to explain it to their little boys. 
And, and so it was, they were doing that week by week. After a while, they got to, to uh, remembering the songs that were sung at the big church they went to once or twice a year. And the boys said, can we sing some of the songs that we sing at church? And so they started to add singing to their worship time that one night a week. And then it seemed sensible that they would include something else they saw at church, and that was prayer, prayer as a group. And so they started praying as a group. Well, you know, in a little village with houses close together, you can't hide things for very long. And the neighbor started hearing. And the neighbor said, what are you doing? And when they were told, they said, could we come? Could we come? And so the neighbors started coming. Other family members started to come. And, and they started to have a group of people there. And when it grew to be 25, the authorities couldn't ignore this anymore. And so the authorities came and they talked to Dimitri. And they said, we see what you're doing. You're starting a church. And you're not going to do this. We're not having this. Dimitri said, whoa, what? What's this? I'm not starting a church. All we're doing is we're having a, a little gathering of family and friends and we're reading from the Bible and we're singing and we have a prayer and if we have a, some extra money, we find somebody in need and we help them out. I'm not a pastor. I don't have any training. How could I start a church? Of course, he really was doing the very basics of what real church is might not be like a big fancy cathedral, but he was doing what real church is all about. And the authorities recognized it better than Dimitri did. And they recognized the threat. And they said, well, you're going to stop this right now. Well, Dimitri didn't stop. They continued meeting each week. And more people started coming. And soon it got to be 50 people in their home. 50 people around the Bible, singing, praying. And one evening when they were having the meeting, the door burst open and the authorities came in. And the captain of the group, or whatever office he was, the highest officer, he came marching down through and he grabbed a hold of Dimitri and he slapped him back and forth and he put him up against the wall. He said, now I've warned you, and I've warned you, and I've warned you. And this has got to stop. If you don't stop this, bad things are going to start happening. And he threatened him with bodily harm and other things. And then the officer turned around and he marched. And the church, if you can imagine 50 people in the home, it was crowded. And as he's making his way through, one old grandmother took her life in her hands and stepped out from the anonymity of that crowd and she pointed her finger in the captain's face. And she said, You, sir, have put your hands on a man of God and you will not survive. She spoke like an Old Testament prophet, didn't she? Woo! Well, he just turned and went, and the others went, the other soldiers or policemen, whatever they were, went with him. That was a Tuesday evening. 
Thursday night, that officer died of a heart attack. And the whole town heard about it. And at the next meeting, there were 150 people at the meeting. They were inside, they were outside, they were looking through the windows. It was amazing. And so the authorities came to get Dimitri. And they took him and they brought him to jail. 600 miles away, they put him in jail. And it was hard, you can imagine. Put in a jail with 1,500 hardened criminals. He was the only believer. A little cell. Lousy food, of course. Cold. There would be ice on the inside walls of his cell in the winter. It was dirty. It was smelly. But he said the worst thing was the, the long, hard separation from his family and from the other believers. That was the worst thing. And when he was asked, how did you survive those 17 years in that prison? He said, well, he had learned from his father two spiritual disciplines. The first one was that just before dawn, or right at dawn every morning, he stood beside his bed. Whoops. He stood beside his bed. He faced east. And he raised his hands and he sang a song to God that resonated his heart to God. Called it his heart song. Sang the same song. And as he did the first time, he raised his hands up and as he sang, the reaction of the other inmates was to what you'd expect. They jeered, they shouted, they took their tin cups and ran them across the bars and made as much noise as they could. They threw things at him, all kinds of horrible stuff they threw at him. They mocked him. But every morning, every morning at dawn, he stood, he raised his arms, and he sang his song to God. The soldiers would come and beat him and threaten him with more. But every morning, he sang his song to God. The other spiritual discipline he had was any time he found even the smallest bit of paper, he would hide it, take it back to his cell, and he saved a piece, little nub of a pencil or a little piece of charcoal that he would sharpen to a point. And on that little piece of paper, in the tiniest letters he could, he would write out any Bible verse he could remember. He would put it down. And in his cell, there was a column. It went up, and the water came in and dripped on it. But it was the only place, the highest place he could put. And in the winter, it was ice. But he would take that little piece of paper after he had covered it front and back, every square millimeter, and with what he could put from God's word, and he would put it up there. 
as an offering to God. And of course the guards would come in and eventually they would find it. And they would read it and then they would beat him and beat him. But every time he found a piece of paper, he would do the same thing again. And he'd put it up as an offering to God. And so this continued, his beatings, the threatenings. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. They tried to break him. They did awful things to his wife and sons. And they'd come and tell him. And finally they told him, they said, we've murdered your wife. Your sons have been taken away by the state. Your home has been destroyed. And then his resolve broke. After all that time, all those years. He said, bring it to me. Bring me the confession. I'll sign whatever you want me to sign. I've had enough. I can't do any more. I can't go on. They said, okay. We'll prepare your confession tonight and tomorrow morning. We'll bring it to you for you to sign and you'll be able to go free. Of course, the confession was that, that because he was connected with the Baptist church and uh, the Russians thought of the Baptists as being part of America and therefore an American spy and he was confessing to espionage and, and all this kind of thing and being a, a traitor to the state he said it doesn't matter just prepare whatever you want I'm done I've had it I'll sign it and so they left him in the darkness of his cell that night he was in such despair deep deep despair he said, how can I do this? But how can I go on? 600 miles away, his brother was visiting his wife. And as they talked, they had this strong impression come over him, or come over them, that Dimitri was in trouble that night. And they needed, he needed their prayers. And so they got around the very chair that he was sitting in that night when he was taken captive and taken away to jail. They gathered around that chair and they began to pray for God to intervene and help Dimitri. And Dimitri in his cell, by the power of the Holy Spirit, heard their prayers of 600 miles away. He heard the voice of his wife praying for him. He heard the voice of his brother praying for him. He heard the voices of his sons at home, not taken away, at home. Now they're grown, 17 years. They're grown boys. They've grown up without their father, but they were praying for their father. The next morning, the officers came in with the confession already to sign. 
and he said, I'm not signing it. They were so surprised. They said, what is this? He said, I'm not signing it. What happened? Why? They just demanded to know. He said, because you have lied to me. You told me my wife was murdered. You told me my boys were taken away. My home was destroyed. But the Holy Spirit of the living God helped me to hear their prayers last night. And you've lied to me. And I'm not signing anything because God is going to be my strength. And he refused. Well, they beat him again. And they left him. The days went by. And this time, God gave him something, a special gift. Because as he walked around in the jail where he was allowed to, he found this time a whole sheet of paper. And the Lord had put a pencil right next to it. And he secreted it away and went to his cell and he covered that whole paper front and back with every Bible story and every text and every song that he could remember until it was covered. And he took it and he put it up on the high pillar and he looked up at God and he thought this was the best gift from prison that he could give to his God. And of course the guards came in and they saw it and they took it down and they read it and they beat him and they threatened him. And they took him and they, started, they dragged him out of his cell and they were dragging him out to the place of execution. And as they were dragging him down the center corridor with the cells all around, all of a sudden, Dimitri and the jailers heard 1,500 men stand to their feet, face the east, lift their arms, and sing the love song that Dimitri had sung every morning for 17 years. And Dimitri said it was the most beautiful choir he had ever heard. And the soldiers dropped him, and they stood back, and they looked at him, and they said, Who are you? And Dimitri stood up straight and tall. He said, I am a son of the living God, and his name is Jesus Christ. He was brought back to his cell. And not too long after, they released him from prison and allowed him to go back to his family. And he began preaching again. Turn with me to Acts chapter 16. 
and look at verse, let's see, which verses do we want? Starting at verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chain fell and were loosed. And it goes on telling about the story. There's power available. The Holy Spirit is still at work 2,000 years later still able to do amazing things. Going on there, it says in verse 27, And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? By the way, one Christian was in prison in a country that persecutes Christians. He began to sing in his cell. And the guard came and said, Don't, don't do that. Don't do that or otherwise we might be converted by your songs. Verse 30, and he brought them out and said, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house and they took him in the same hour that night. They washed their stripes and immediately he and all his family were baptized. In a different country, a country that was uh, mostly Muslim, a Christian organization operated a health clinic. And most of the people didn't care that the, that the uh, operators of the of the health clinic, you know, the doctors and nurses and others were Christians that didn't bother most of the Muslim people. But there were a few radicals who didn't like the Christians being there. Most of the people just were glad there was some good medical care available. But there was one man in particular. He lived right across the street from the, from the clinic. And he had a store right in the same block. And he would take and make fun of the Christians when they were coming and going to the clinic. And he would even talk to the Muslim people and say, don't go there. Those people are going to cheat you. They're dishonest. In fact, they'll give you poison instead of medicine. And he would say all kinds of horrible things. He was an angry, vicious, horrible person. And this went on and on. We'll call his name Mahmoud. Well, after years of this, Mahmoud contracted an incurable cancer. His friends in the Islamic community considered him contagious, so they stayed away and he wouldn't go to his store to shop. He's losing all of his business. 
the Christians who ran the clinic heard about this and they stopped, they started to shop in his store in order to give him some income. And as things got worse, they came and they began to treat him, even bathe him when necessary, with kindness and gentleness. And as they took care with love and gentleness, their harshest enemy in that community, his heart began to soften. And he wanted to know more of why and how they could do this to him. And finally, you know, he became a friend and then he became a believer. He was converted. And his Christian friends and brothers helped him to die with dignity. At 57, he had, I believe it was four wives that was allowable there. His youngest wife was a widow at 24. But she had seen how the Christians treated him after all he did to them. And she observed his heart change and his conversion, and she became a believer too. In fact, she started witnessing and telling other people in the neighborhood about Jesus and became one of the most effective evangelists in that whole region. So much so that that uh, government, which was not known for putting women in prison, they got a hold of her. They arrested her. And they lectured her and they warned her and they didn't have a jail cell to put her into. They put her in the unfinished basement that was damp and dark and had a dirt floor and had mice and rats and spiders. I said enough, didn't I? And they closed her up in that dark place. And she was down in there and she wanted to scream out to God, Oh God, help me! But when she opened her mouth to scream, out came a beautiful song. One of her heart songs. And she was startled by her voice and by the beauty of the song. And, and she got new courage and she started to sing louder. And she sang and sang and as she sang, she heard the people above in the offices get really strangely quiet. One after the other. And she kept singing. And the darkness came. People left. But then someone opened up the trap door to the basement. It was the police chief himself. And he brought her up out of that prison, so to speak. And he put her up there and he said, now I'm going to let you go home. But she looked at the clock. It was after midnight. She said, oh, no, you can't let me do that. You see, he knew and she knew that in that community, it was against the law for a woman to be out of her house after midnight alone. He thought, oh, no, he's trying to entrap me into something worse and make me in, get me into more trouble. But he said, no, 
No, I'm going to take you home. And then she thought, uh-oh, what does he want to do with me on the way home? And he saw it in her face. He said, no. He said, I'm going to take you safely home. And he looked at her and he said, you are not afraid of anything. He said, all my wives and all my daughters, they're afraid of everything. But you're not afraid of anything. How is that possible? I don't understand it. He said, I'm going to take you home tonight, and in three days I'm coming to get you, and I'm going to take you to my house because I want you to tell my wives and my daughters why you're not afraid of anything. And I want you to sing that song. Now, I believe that that girl, uh, Aisha was her name. I'm sure Aisha was afraid. She wanted to scream, didn't she? But she had learned to not be controlled by her fear. By faith, she found a way to overcome her fear. And this is the power of the Holy Spirit. Feelings are designed by God and they're designed to be felt don't be afraid to feel your feelings but you don't need to be controlled by your feelings that's a different thing isn't it Aisha learned to let the power of the Holy Spirit have control that's what the power of the Holy Spirit looks like it's bigger than other miracles like like healing people and so on. Were, were the disciples of Jesus naturally cooperative with the Holy Spirit? No. They had feelings and desires. And they were holding on to them and arguing about it all the time, weren't they? They hadn't learned yet. They needed to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. Because the Holy Spirit can't use them until they've learned that lesson not to be controlled by feelings, but to be controlled by the Spirit and the principles of God's Word, which, of course, the Holy Spirit's upholding. The disciples had to choose between their feelings and desires and the desires of Christ and the control of the Holy Spirit. And that's the same decision you and I have to make. Will we be controlled by our feelings? Or will we invite the Holy Spirit to get, have the ability in our hearts to overcome those feelings that we can live by his principles? In this end time, God wants a new set of disciples. He wants to write a new book of Acts. Will you be part of it? Will I? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, what a marvelous king you are and what an amazing kingdom you have planned. Kingdom of real men and women with real feelings, real desires, but who are controlled by the Spirit. 
who hold on to your principles, your truth, and who are empowered to stand. Oh, that in our lives you may get the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is number... Let's see, 260, Hover O'er Me, Holy Spirit, number 260.
is from Romans 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.